this evening we have two Bible readings. Uh, the first is Genesis 25, verses 19 to 34, and can be found on page 19 of the Church Bibles, or on the screens, or in your handouts. This is the account of the family line of Abraham's son Isaac. Abraham became the father of Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he married Rebekah, daughter of Bethuel the Aramean, from Padam Aram, and the sister of Laban the Aramean. Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife, because she was childless. The Lord answered his prayer, and his wife Rebekah became pregnant. The Babels jostled each other within her, and she said, Why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. The Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you will be separated. One people will be stronger than the other, and the other will serve the younger. When the time came for her to give birth, there were twin boys in her womb. The first to come out was red, and his whole body was like a hairy garment. So they named him Esau. After this, his brother came out, with his hand grasping Esau's heel. So he was named Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when Rebekah gave birth to them. The boys grew up, and Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the open country, while Jacob was content to stay at home among the tents. Isaac, who had a taste for wild game, loved Esau, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Once, when Jacob was cooking some stew, Esau came in from the open country famished. He said to Jacob, Quick, let me have some of that red stew. I'm famished. That is why he is also called Edom. Jacob replied, First, sell me your birthright. Look, I am about to die, Esau said. What good is the birthright to me? But Jacob said, Swear to me first. So he swore an oath to him, selling his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau some bread and some lentil stew. He ate and drank and then got up and left. So Esau despised his birthright. The second reading is Genesis 27, uh, verses 1 to 40, and can be found on page 21 of the Church Bibles. When Isaac was old and his eyes were so weak that he could no longer see, he called for Esau, his older son, and said to him, My son, here I am, he answered. Isaac said, I am now an old man and I don't know the day of my death. Now then, get your equipment, your quiver and bow, and go out to the open country to hunt some wild game for me. Prepare me the kind of tasty food I like and bring it to me to eat, so that I may give you my blessing before I die. Now Rebekah was listening as Isaac spoke to his son Esau. When Esau left for the open country to hunt game and bring it back, Rebekah said to her son Jacob, Look, I overheard your father say to your brother Esau, Bring me some game and prepare me some tasty food to eat, so that I may give you my blessing in the presence of the Lord before I die. Now, my son, listen carefully and do what I tell you. Go out to the flock and bring me two choice young goats, so I can prepare some tasty food for your father, just the way he likes it. Then take it to your father to eat, so that he may give you his blessing before he dies. Jacob said to Rebekah, his mother, But my brother Esau is a hairy man, while I have smooth skin. What if my father touches me? I would appear to be tricking him, and would bring down a curse on myself rather than a blessing. His mother said to him, My son, let the curse fall on me. Just do what I say. Go and get them for me. So he went and got them, and brought them to his mother, and she prepared some tasty food just the way his father liked it. Then Rebekah took the best clothes of Esau, her older son, which she had in the house, and put them on her younger son Jacob. 
She also covered his hands and the smooth part of his neck with the goat skins. Then she handed to her son Jacob the tasty food and the bread she had made. He went to his father and said, My father. Yes, my son, he answered. Who is it? Jacob to his father. He answered, Who is it? Jacob said to his father, I am Esau, your firstborn. I have done as you told me. Please sit up and eat some of my game so that you may give me your blessing. Isaac asked his son, How did you find it so quickly, my son? The Lord gave you. The Lord your God gave me success, he replied. Then Isaac said to Jacob, Come near so I can touch you, my son, to know whether you really are my son Esau or not. Jacob went close to his father Isaac, who touched him and said, The voice is the voice of Jacob, but the hands are the hands of Esau. He did not recognize him, for his hands were hairy like those of his brother Esau. So he proceeded to bless him. Are you really my son Esau? he asked. I am, he replied. Then he said, My son, bring me some of your game to eat, so that, may, that I may give you my blessing. Jacob brought it to him, and he ate, and he brought some wine, and he drank. Then his father Isaac said to him, Come here, my son, and kiss me. So he went and kissed him. When Isaac caught the smell of his clothes, he blessed him and said, Ah, the smell of my son is like the smell of a field that the Lord has blessed. May God give you, you heaven's dew and earth's richness, an abundance of grain and new wine. May nations serve you and peoples bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers, and may the sons of your mother bow down to you. May those who curse you be cursed, and those who bless you be blessed. <coughs> After Isaac finished blessing him, and Jacob had scarcely left his father's presence, his brother Esau came in from hunting. He too prepared some tasty food and brought it to his father. Then he said to him, My father, please sit up and eat some of my game, so that you may give me your blessing. His father Isaac asked him, Who are you? I am your son, he answered, your firstborn Esau. Isaac trembled violently and said, Who was it then that hunted game and brought it to me? I ate it just before you came, and I blessed him, and indeed he will be blessed. When Esau heard his father's words, he burst out with a loud and bitter cry and said to his father, Bless me, me too, my father. But he said, Your brother came deceitfully and took your blessing. Esau said, isn't he rightly named Jacob? This is the second time he has taken advantage of me. He took my birthright, and now he's taken my blessing. Then he asked, Haven't you reserved any blessing for me? Isaac answered Esau, I have made him lord over you, and have made all his relatives his servants, and I have sustained him with grain and new wine. So what can I possibly do for you, my son? Esau said to his father, Do you have only one blessing, my father? Bless me too, my father. Then Esau wept aloud. His father Isaac answered him, Your dwelling will be away from the earth's richness, away from the dew of heaven above. You will live by the sword, and you will serve your brother. But when you grow restless, you will throw his yoke off your neck. Thank you, James. Good evening, friends. It's great to see you. Can I invite you please to uh, take a Bible and leave it open there at Genesis 25. Uh, we are continuing our series in Genesis. It's, it's a series that we've entitled Sovereign Grace. And uh, that is because through every part of this section of Genesis, through all of the failures of the key figures and all of the apparent setbacks, uh, God is actually working sovereignly behind it all to achieve his purpose to save people from every nation on earth. That's the big story of Genesis. 
uh, and it's our prayer, of course, that as we look at these parts of Genesis together over these weeks, that we will be reminded uh, of that same grace at work for us today who believe in the Lord Jesus. So keep a Bible open there at uh, Genesis 25 and join me in prayer as we ask for God's help tonight. Let's pray. Our great God and our loving Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, that uh, your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. We pray, Lord God, that you would illuminate the things of salvation and eternity uh, and the glorious invitation that we have to come and to approach the Lord Jesus Christ in faith tonight. Uh, Would you light the path uh, of salvation, we pray, through your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I want to begin by asking you to ponder the question with me this evening. Do you think your salvation is a secure salvation? Uh, Is your salvation secure? We live in a world today that suggests that the way to true success and security in life lies in our hands alone. Uh, You pull up at a train station or you pass by a highway billboard and it says something like Macquarie University sees your future today. Or you open the finance section of the newspaper and uh, it says Australian superannuation, uh, create your secure future today. And the idea lying behind these kinds of messages seems to be that uh, if you want true security now and in the future, then it all comes down to you. Uh, Make the right choice, choose the right education, choose the right job, the right super fund. And the question I want to ask us tonight is, is this the way it happens with God? Does our salvation as Christians depend on our ability to make the right choices in life and sustain them? And if we mess up or we make a bad choice, we may end up living God's second best for our lives or worse still, we may lose salvation entirely. Just how secure is our salvation and does our salvation all depend on us? It is into these questions that the book of Genesis speaks and as we study it today, what we're going to see is that if if our salvation did depend on us and our virtue and our moral consistency, uh, the quality of our lives, then yes, our salvation would undoubtedly be in trouble. Indeed, as we open this part of Genesis, what greets us in the lives of the key figures, uh, you'll see as it was read and as we've seen, as we will see in the weeks to come, what greets us in the lives of these key figures is a group of deeply flawed people. Uh, And if God's plan of salvation did depend on them and their consistency and virtue, the whole plan would be in trouble But mercifully, what we're also going to see is God's plan of salvation does not ultimately depend upon human virtue, but on the grace, the power, and the mercy of God. And that means it is a secure salvation. And if we are those who cling to God in Christ Jesus, then it is a salvation that can never be uh, taken away. And that's very, very, very good news. And so as we work through this section... There are three key things I want to draw out uh, of this part of Genesis. We're going to look at a sovereign choice. We're going to look at a sly deception. And thirdly, as we sum the whole thing up, we're going to think about and reflect on uh, the security of our salvation in Christ, a secure salvation. Now remember where we're up to in the story of salvation so far in a world of despair, 
In Genesis chapter 12, God calls one man, Abraham, to know him and he makes big promises to Abraham. He promises Abraham a land. He promises that he'll be the father of a great nation and through Abraham all nations on earth were going to be blessed. And against all human odds, we have seen God be faithful to that promise in the story so far. Then in our passage today, we move forward in the story of salvation to the time of Isaac and his family. Isaac was the son, the son of Abraham and Sarah, through whom God's promises were to be fulfilled. And yet the situation that greets us in Genesis 25 to 27 is not only a set of circumstances which, humanly speaking, again seem to make the fulfilment of God's promises seem quite remote, but we're introduced to a family whose family life and family culture was deeply flawed. And yet against that backdrop, God proves himself to be faithful. And in chapter 26, which wasn't read to us, it's wedged in between the two uh, narratives we read tonight, we're introduced to some of the challenging circumstances that befell Isaac and his wife Rebecca, like Abraham and Sarah before them. They are forced to live for a time in a foreign land because of a famine. They encounter a whole range of difficulties. Isaac fears for his life, but the Lord appears to Isaac and he says to him, he re restates the promises made to Abraham and he says to you and your descendants, Isaac, I will give all these lands and I will confirm the oath I swore to your father Abraham. I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and will give them all these lands and through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed. So God confirms his promise to Isaac and by the end of chapter 26, Isaac prospers greatly. And then in chapter 25, which actually happens after the events of chapter 26, they're kind of uh, jumbled up in terms of the timeline. The other challenge that they face is that like Sarah before her, Isaac's wife Rebecca was also childless. And so in chapter 5, verse 20, uh, chapter 25, rather, um, verse 21, we're told, Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife. The Lord answered his prayer and his wife Rebecca became pregnant. This too confirms that uh, whatever obstacle stood in the way of God's blessing, the Lord would sovereignly remove them. And then in chapter 25, verse 21, we're invited to focus in on an aspect of the story of salvation that is quite startling. The story focuses in on a sovereign choice that God makes between the children of Isaac and Rebekah and how God calls one and not the other to inherit his blessing. Look there at uh, chapter 25, verse 21. The Lord answered Isaac's prayer and his wife Rebekah became pregnant. The babies jostled each other within her and she said, why is this happening to me? Uh, so she went to inquire of the Lord. The Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb and two peoples from within you will be separated. One people will be stronger than the other and the older will serve the younger. Uh, what's happening? Well, just as God made a sovereign choice to establish his promise through Abraham, not because of anything Abraham had done, not because of his works or virtue, uh, and then through Isaac, here he also makes a choice about which of Isaac's sons would carry the promise. And so uh, Rebecca falls pregnant with twins, 
And in what seems to be a very painful pregnancy, they begin wrestling with each other in the womb. And Rebecca asks God what's happening. And God makes a sovereign pronouncement in verse 25 that there were two children in her womb. They'll become two nations. One will be stronger than the other. And the older would serve the younger. Now, in the usual course of things, in family life, that's not how it's meant to be, is it? In the usual course of things, then, like today, the younger serves the older. If I ask for a show of hands for who are the older siblings amongst us, um, the rest of us might look at you still carrying the scars of the misfortune we suffered at your hands. Um, That's the normal course of things, isn't it? Um, But uh, God says with these two brothers, it was going to be the other way around. With these brothers, God says the older would serve the younger. Now, we're going to reflect a little later on on how God has actually done exactly the same thing for us. He has saved us and he has made us inheritors of his blessing, not because of anything we have done, not because of any work or virtue in us, but simply because of his sovereign grace and mercy that he lavished on us before time. We'll think about that a little later. But I think what is perhaps most startling for us to notice in these chapters is how God's sovereign choice is actually worked out through the flawed lives of the human characters. And that takes us to our second point, a sly deception. And there are two parts to this in chapters 25 and 27 and so we see at the end of chapter 25 these two children in Rebecca's womb are born the older brother is hairy and red which is most likely a reference to his hair color and he is given the name Esau sometimes in the Old Testament he's referred to by the name Edom that's the way he's referred to there in chapter 25 in uh, one of the verses and in the original language that's what the two names mean hairy and red Esau and Edom. Esau grows up to be a skillful hunter and he is loved by his father Isaac. Jacob, on the other hand, he comes out so quickly that he's holding onto his brother's heel as he is born and so he is called Jacob. That's what uh, his name means in the original language. It means he grasps the heel, although figuratively it's a kind of figure of speech for he deceives. The name Jacob means the deceiver. And that becomes important as the story goes on. And uh, Jacob loves the quiet life among the tents uh, and he is loved by his mother, Rebecca. Now, one day, uh, Jacob, who loves the quiet life among the tents, he's at home playing a bit of MasterChef, uh, cooking up some red lentil stew. And and on this day, uh, Esau, the older brother, uh, comes home from a hunting trip, though it hasn't been a very successful hunting trip. And uh, he's, he sees his brother cooking up some stew and he says, look, uh, give me some stew, I'm famished. And Jacob says, no, first of all, you've got to sell me your birthright. Esau pleads, look, what, what good is a birthright to me? I'm starving, give me some food. Uh, Jacob insists, sell me the birthright. And Esau sells it to him for a bowl of stew. All the rights and privileges that were Esau's by virtue of the fact that he was the firstborn son, uh, being heir of the family line, being heir of the family blessing and fortune, all of those rights and privileges he sells for the momentary pleasure of a bowl of stew. And it's tempting to think that Jacob is the bad guy here, 
But actually, the last sentence in chapter 25 tells us Scripture's verdict on Esau's actions. Look at the last sentence of chapter 25. It says, so Esau despised his birthright. You see, Scripture views this event as being not so much about Jacob's trickery, although it is about that, but it's more to the point about Esau's foolishness. Esau saw as a worthless thing what should have been treasured above all else. More on that later. But that's the first part of how God's sovereign choice is worked out through human action. The second takes place in chapter 27, and it's all set up for us in the first couple of verses. Uh, Look there at chapter 7, first couple of verses. When Isaac was old and his eyes were so weak that he could no longer see, he called for Esau, his older son, and he said to him, My son, here I am, Esau answered. Isaac said, I am now an old man and don't know the day of my death. Now then, get your equipment, your quiver and your bow, and go out to the open country to hunt some wild game for me. Prepare me uh, the kind of tasty food I like and bring it to me to eat so that I may give you my blessing before I die. So Isaac is now old and he is preparing to pass on to Esau, his eldest son, the blessing of God's promise. But what he doesn't realize in verse 5 is that Rebekah, his wife overhears the whole conversation. And re- remember, Rebecca, she loves in this kind of foolish display of family favoritism, she loves Jacob. So she springs into action and she says, verse 5, look, Jacob, this is what's going down. It's going down now. Your dad is about to bless Esau. Hop out the back, grab two of the goats, come in, uh, and I'll cook it all up for you just the way your father likes. And she dresses Jacob in his brother's clothes and uh, she gets some of the animal skin and she covers Jacob's arm. It's a fairly disturbing picture of just how hairy Esau must have been. But uh, this is what she does and uh, Jacob uh, goes into his father and his father at first, of course, is fairly suspicious. Are you really Esau? How come you've come back so quickly? Come here, let me touch you. So Jacob uh, puts out his arm and Esau Uh, Isaac feels how hairy the arm is and Isaac says, but you you sound like Jacob. Are you really Esau? And Jacob looks at his father and he says, yes, I'm Esau. It's disturbing how in such a crucial moment about such a crucial matter, Jacob point blank deceives his father. He outright lies. It is a horrible deception, though in verse 25, the deception works. And in verse 25, Isaac says to Jacob, thinking that he is his son Esau, uh, uh, his father Isaac said to him, come here, my son, and kiss me. So he went to his father and he kissed him. When Isaac caught the smell of his clothes, he blessed him and he said, ah, the smell of my son is like the smell of a field that the Lord has blessed. May God give you heaven's dew and earth's richness an abundance of grain in you, wine may nations serve you and peoples bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers and may the sons of your mother bow down to you. May those who curse you be cursed and those who bless you be blessed. You can hear there the echoes of Genesis chapter 12, the blessing of God to Abraham in Genesis 12. Those who bless you, I will bless. Those who curse you, I will curse. And here that same promise is being applied 
to Jacob, uh, the son of Isaac, the second born son of Isaac. And now in terms of how this all works out for Esau, the eldest son, the next scene is a chilling scene. We're told in verse 30 that Jacob had scarcely left his father's presence. Then Esau, the eldest son, returns to bring his father his stew and to receive what he thought was going to be the family blessing. Yet when both Isaac and Esau realized the deception that had occurred, we get this chilling scene uh, of the elderly Isaac trembling violently, trembling violently and Esau bursting out with a loud and bitter cry, Bless me to my father. And Isaac replies, There is no more blessing to give. My blessing has gone to Jacob and he will be blessed. And what is striking here is that, <laughs> you know, uh, all through Genesis and this narrative and the narratives to come, we'll see more next week, more mess. But uh, there is so much mucky stuff going on in these chapters, the foolishness and the short-sightedness of Esau, the deception and the trickery of Rebekah and Jacob, um, the gullibility and blindness of Isaac, there is genuine human sin and folly woven throughout the whole thing. And yet when all is said and done, the result is God's word to Rebekah in chapter 25 is fulfilled. God's sovereign choice is confirmed. The older will serve the younger and the younger son would become the inheritor of God's saving sovereign blessing in the world. That's the narrative. And so, as we step back from this incredible, striking, perplexing, concerning turn of events, uh, as we reflect on this, what do we make of it? What do we make of these events? And how do we as New Testament believers apply the lessons of this part of Scripture? And how does it help us answer the question that we started by asking today, how secure is our salvation? Well, there are three things I want to highlight about the security of our salvation. Firstly, uh, these chapters show us that our salvation is secure because of God's sovereign power. We see this firstly in the account of Isaac, and we didn't dwell on this so much tonight. In fact, we didn't look at chapter 26, but we would have seen there that great obstacles stood in the way of Isaac receiving God's blessing. Opposition in the land, uh, childlessness, and yet the constant refrain throughout those chapters is the Lord answered and the Lord blessed. For Isaac, God's power overcame every obstacle that stood in the way of God's blessing. What's more, in the account of, of Jacob and Esau, which we have dwelt on more um, in detail tonight, we see that God's power and sovereignty is such, please hear this, please understand this, that God is even able to achieve what he has promised despite and even through human sin. That is important to underline. Think about that. Think about the dysfunction and the deception of Isaac's family. It is absolutely staggering, and yet it is precisely through those events that God's power achieves his saving plan. 
And I want to suggest to you very strongly tonight that we see parallels and echoes of this right throughout the course of salvation. And we see this uh, uh, ultimately and climactically in uh, the central event of our salvation in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. Think about that. If ever there was a moment when it looked like human sin and evil had triumphed and had derailed the plans of God, it was then at the moment of the cross of Christ. And yet it was exactly then at the moment of seeming human triumph when evil and sin had triumphed over the Son of God that God was fulfilling his plan of salvation since before time began. In Acts chapter 4, the apostle Peter, after the resurrection of Jesus, looks back on those events of the cross of Jesus and he says this. He says, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city, Jerusalem, to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. In killing Jesus, they did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. You see, at the heart of our salvation stands a God. This is quite wonderful. This is quite spectacular. At the heart of our salvation stands a God who is able to achieve salvation despite and even through human sin. Now, there is profound mystery in all of that, which we will never fully understand. But I put it to you tonight that that ought to profoundly and wonderfully encourage us. God is able to achieve salvation despite and even through human sin. We see the same thing as the news of the gospel ripples out from Jerusalem in the New Testament. As the gospel is preached in the time of the New Testament, there is resistance from all kinds of forces, from Jewish authorities and Gentile authorities. There are persecutions, there are floggings, there are imprisonments, storms, shipwrecks and hunger. There are innumerable obstacles that threaten the gospel's progress, but not one of them succeeds. Why is that? Well, because God is able to remove any obstacle that stands in the way of his saving plan and his saving blessing. And still today, many obstacles stand in the way of the gospel uh, progressing in our world today. And we as his people still experience many difficulties. And yet scripture declares and scripture demonstrates on page after page throughout the Bible story over the course of millennia that nothing can thwart God's power to save. Nothing in all creation can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, says the Apostle Paul in Romans 8. Nothing can stop us inheriting what God has promised those who love him. Salvation is secure because of God's sovereign power. Secondly, uh, salvation is secure because of God's sovereign grace. And we see here in this uh, uh, perplexing and gripping uh, narrative here in Genesis. We see that God made a sovereign choice in calling Jacob to inherit his promises, not because of anything Jacob had done, not because of Jacob's works. It was, it was a, a sovereign call uh, that, that, that God made before Jacob was born. It was a gift of God's grace. And the thing we need to realize, and please understand this, is that this is exactly what God has done for us in the Lord Jesus Christ. In Ephesians chapter 1, 
the Apostle Paul says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. And in Ephesians 2, he goes on to say, As for you, as for us, we were dead in our transgressions and sins, but God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. It is by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. The Apostle Paul is saying here that just as a, a, a dead person is completely incapable of bringing themselves to life, and just as a child is incapable of bringing themselves into the world, so in salvation, God has granted to fallen sinners a new spiritual life uh, that is the product of his free and effervescent and overflowing grace. It is not a product of our works. Not a product of our works so that none might boast. It is a gift of his free and overflowing and effervescent grace. And because of that, it is secure. But here is the thing we must know. What does this mean for the person who wants to know Jesus Christ today? What does this mean for the person who is seeking Jesus Christ today? Can they come freely? Scripture answers that question by saying that if we are people who desire to know Jesus Christ, if we feel the inner compulsion of the Holy Spirit, if we desire to know Jesus Christ, then come freely, Christ will never turn you away. Listen to these beautiful words of the Lord Jesus in John chapter 6. He said, all those the Father gives me will come to me. There's the sovereign call of God. And whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life and I will raise them up at the last day. The Lord Jesus Christ, the author of our salvation, presents the grace of God, the sovereign call of God, and he presents our opportunity to respond to the grace of God in Christ in a beautiful, harmonised whole. He does not separate the two. And it is actually by the preaching of the gospel and our response to that gospel in time that a person is called to the salvation that God calls them to. And so I want to say to you tonight, if you are a person who wants to know Jesus Christ, if you are a person who is feeling that uh, call of the gospel to trust in Jesus Christ, I want to say to you, Come boldly. Jesus will never turn you away. Salvation is secure because of God's sovereign power. Salvation is secure because of God's sovereign grace. And thirdly, salvation is secure, but it is not to be despised. And here I simply want to draw our attention to that chilling verse at the end of chapter 25 of Genesis. And it says... So Esau despised his birthright. And it is very interesting that the New Testament looks back on this moment with Esau, not so much to condemn Jacob, but to condemn Esau's foolishness. Hebrews chapter 12 says, 
see that no one is immoral or godless like Esau, who for a single meal sold his inheritance rights as the oldest son. You see, the New Testament looks back on Esau's actions as a warning and it says we must not be people who treat the privilege of salvation carelessly or presumptuously. We are not to be people who risk throwing away something that is priceless for the sake of momentary pleasure and, uh, uh, and foolishness now. Salvation is secure and yet Esau stands as a warning that there ought not to be anything in our lives that we value more highly than salvation in Christ, not career, uh, not family, not pleasure, not pastimes. The Lord Jesus Christ said, what does it profit a person if they gain the whole world, figuratively speaking, yet they forfeit their very soul because they have treated the things of salvation with callous regard? And so for us today, my prayer is that there will be nothing in our lives more valuable than the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ our Lord. May we cherish it, may we value it, and may we consider all things as loss compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ our Lord. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you that it is by grace we have been saved, not by works so that none might boast. It is the gift of your free and sovereign and overflowing grace. And so, Lord God, we pray that those of us who are hearing the gospel call for the first time tonight uh, might come to Jesus and might experience that wonderful welcome that he offers to everybody who comes to him in faith. And for those of us who've been following Jesus for some time, uh, we pray by your grace that you would so grip us with the truth of the gospel and the spectacular privilege of knowing Christ that uh, we might consider following Jesus our life's greatest delight. May we cherish salvation. May we follow the Lord Jesus with all that we have. And may we consider all other things as loss compared to the surpassing glory of knowing Jesus Christ our Lord. We ask it in his name. Amen.